Well, good evening. Wow. That was, uh, that was quite the introduction from Steve, and only five of you stood, so I'll rem- I remember who was sitting during that, but old Rhonda Jean, Kevin Miller, what do you do with that guy? But uh, it's good to have you here tonight. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and uh, you know, we've been in this series called Based on a True Story, and I- I've thoroughly enjoyed uh, this series. Typically in the summer, if you haven't been around for a Life Church summer, typically there's a, a few weeks through the summer where Pastor Aaron kind of lets his vocal cords rest a bit. Believe it or not, speaking week in, week out uh, every single week is, is it can be extremely draining. So it also gives an opportunity for a lot of the staff members to be able to, to speak. And we have a great team of staff here at Life Church, and it's my honor to be able to continue that trend tonight and be able to speak. But before we do that, could we give a huge welcome to our Appleton campus and our online campus today watching? I grew up, as some of you may know, uh, in Minnesota in the, uh, most of the 80s and the 90s. And so if you knew anything about Minnesota during that time, uh, everybody was a Minnesota Twins fan. Um, the, the, the little bit of success the Twins have had all seemed to be concentrated in about a four-year stretch. Uh, between 1987 and 1991, they won the World Series in 87 and they won it again in 1991. And so Minneapolis has not always been Losersville, USA. Uh, It had had a little bit of success there. And so everybody was a huge Twins fan. And it was kind of the hysteria. I mean, everybody was just excited about the Twins. And so uh, I was no different. Any any boy growing up in the 80s and 90s in Minnesota, if you asked them, who's your favorite athlete of all time? I bet you 95% of them would, without missing a beat, would say Kirby Puckett. I mean, he was just the man. Anybody remember Kirby Puckett? Okay, yeah, he, yeah you can clap for Kirby Puckett. He is awesome. I, I loved Kirby Puckett. He was just one of my favorite, my, still to this day, my favorite athlete of all time. And he, he was short and pudgy, which usually doesn't make for an incredible center fielder in baseball. But he was just incredibly athletic. And he kind of became a living legend in the 91 World Series. If, if you remember at Game 6, he made one of the best catches you're ever going to see in baseball, and then that kept him in the game, and then followed it up in the bottom of the 11th inning and hit a walk-off home run in the World Series to send them to Game 7, which they eventually won. And it was just, it was awesome. He was my absolute hero growing up. I mean, everybody wanted to play baseball because of a guy like Kirby Puckett. And so we were at a baseball game, my family. Uh, it was Memorial Day weekend. I called my dad, and he, he knew the date. Memorial Day weekend, 1990, and so I, I wasn't going to remember that level of detail, but, uh, and sure enough, it was, and they played the Baltimore Orioles, because I looked it up, it's not because I remember that, and then Kirby Puckett did hit a home run that day, and they won 6-4, to four. and at the end of the game, we were going to go home, but we had heard from one of our friends that if you go to the back part of the Metrodome, the Metrodome, just a total dump, by the way, I'm so glad for Target Field, but you go to the back of the Metrodome, and you can see all the players come out to their cars, and sometimes you can actually catch one of them and get an autograph. And so as a six-year-old, I was pumped about that, and we are like asking our dad, can we go do that, can we do it? And my brother was 10 at the time, and so uh, he brings us to the back, and we just wait and wait and wait. And there were a couple of players that came out. I, one of them, I remember seeing Gary Gaetti. My brother got his autograph. He was also a good, good player. 
but no Kirby Puckett. And you know everybody there, they were there to see Kirby Puckett. I mean, they were just waiting for him. No sign of him. There was a couple hundred people or so, and pretty soon after, I don't know, it had to have been at least an hour, maybe even longer, there was only maybe 20 or 30 of us left, just crazy people, <laughs> looking to get an autograph uh, from Kirby Puckett. And sure enough, the doors open, white doves fly out of the Metrodome, <laughs> A great white light shone from the depths of the Metrodome and out walked Kirby Puckett. I mean, it was almost too good to be true. We were just like, that's him. And everybody started going towards him and, you know, putting baseballs and, you know, trying to get autographs. And I'm thinking, as a six-year-old, I'm a tiny little kid. He's not going to see me. I can't kind of make my way through. But I noticed that he was walking in my direction. And I was like, maybe there's a chance. Maybe there's a chance. And as he got closer, he was about 10 feet away, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm starting to get nervous. Like, I'm, like, this might happen. <laughs> I didn't even know what to do or say. I'm like, what am I going to do, you know? And I realized I didn't really have anything for him to sign. All I had was my baseball glove, because, you know, remember as a kid, you'd bring your, your glove thinking, just in case a home run ball, you know, i got to be ready at all times, even, even if you're sitting in, you know, crazy part of the stadium uh, where there's never been a ball hit, but you're ready. And so all I have is my glove, about 10 feet away, my mom actually snapped a picture, and we have it today. I found it in the archives. Here it is. By the way, look how 1990 that picture is. Uh, check out the kid in the, you see the Zuba shirt right there? That is an aggressive mullet. I, I don't know why that allowed, was allowed to happen. So you, I am in this picture. It's hard to tell. My dad is on the far right. You see that little platinum-colored hair down in the bottom corner? That's me. I assure you that that is me. But anyway, you can, you can take the picture down now. I just found it. I was like, I got I to gotta show you the picture. But he gets closer, and he's standing right in front of me. And I'm like, I'm just nervous. It's all get out. And I, I hand my glove up to him. He takes the glove, and I'll never forget what Kirby Puckett said to me that day. Where's your pen, man? Where's your pen? That's all he said to me. And I realized at that moment, I didn't have a pen. I just gave him my glove, and I'm like, I'm panicking. Does anybody have a pen? And sure enough, somebody else saw it, gave him a pen. He signed my baseball glove. And I'd like to tell you that I was a smart six-year-old, and I put that glove in some sort of glass case or bubble wrap or something. Uh, but no, I went out and played Little League with it. It wore off over time, and you couldn't see it anymore. I did redeem myself later on in life. I did get his autograph again. Uh, but anyway, I'll never forget that day as long as I live. I mean, I, I, that was... To me, it's, it's one of the, it's like a fundamental core, if you've ever seen Inside Out, it's like a core memory for me. I mean, it's one that I remember to this day. I can remember exactly where I was. I can remember exactly how I felt. I can remember, I can hear him saying those words to me. I mean, it was that big of a deal to me. I can tell you all about Kirby Puckett. I mean, I, I, I could tell you that his career batting average was 318. It's pretty good. I can tell you he played 12 years in the big leagues, uh, 10 of which he was an, an all-star. I can tell you he was rookie of the year in 1984. I mean, I could go on and on. I, could, I saw so many different times. I saw him play on TV. I saw him live. I, saw, I just knew a lot about him, but nothing could compare to that one-on-one, -on -one, like that face-to-face -face encounter where he spoke to me, and I, I mean, we had a connection as little as it seems, as, as embarrassing as it is that I didn't even have a pen, it was an amazing moment for me as a kid. See, I tell you that because I believe, you know, as a, as a Christ follower, I can tell you a lot about God. 
I can, I can read you scripture after scripture. I can memorize scripture. You can hear the best teaching in the world every single week. You can listen to podcasts. And all of that stuff is good to, to learn more about God. But none of it can compare to having a one-on-one encounter with him. Nothing can replace that face-to-face encounter. Today I want to talk to you about how do we, how do we encounter God because I don't want to just hear about somebody else's encounter. Yeah, I, I, that's encouraging, and I always I, lo- I love hearing stories when people have an encounter with God, but I want to experience that for myself. I, I don't want just more information, you know, more knowledge. That's good. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. But I, wanna, I want that to move my heart. I want to have an encounter where it moves my heart. So today, I, I would suggest that we, as Christ followers, can position ourselves better, can produce more fertile soil for God to encounter us, or better yet, for us to encounter God. I want to look at the life of a man in the Old Testament, one of the most famous people in all Scripture. His name is Moses. Many of you probably know a lot about Moses. More is documented about him than than almost anybody else in Scripture. But Moses had regular encounters with God. In fact, the Bible describes his relationship with God as being a face-to-face relationship. Exodus 33, verse 11 says, The Lord would speak to Moses face-to-face as one speaks to a friend. That's pretty awesome. I mean, that's just pretty incredible to think about that. And my question, if Moses was here today, I, I, I would definitely want to ask him this one question. How did you get there? Because this, this, you know, chapter 33 is a little bit later in his life. How did you get to the point where you had a face-to-face relationship with God? What, how, how did you get from meeting him for the first time all the way to having this, this type of relationship? And I think it's important that we look at the very first time that Moses encountered God. There's a theological principle I learned about in Bible college called the law of first mention. That anytime something is mentioned for the very first time in Scripture, it oftentimes is more significant. There's more clarity and detail to it. And so with Moses, it's no different. We want to go back to where's the very first time that he encountered God? Because I think we learn a lot from the very first time Moses encountered God. It's in Exodus chapter 3. If you want to turn there, if you have your Bibles. And it's a very famous story. It's the story of the burning bush. But I want to look at it maybe through a, a different lens today, maybe one that um, uh, uh, maybe you haven't heard before, but I want to learn a little bit from it today. How can we encounter God in a more powerful and regular way in our life? Uh, just to kind of catch you up before we read it, uh, Moses was a Hebrew boy, grew up in, 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 in the palace of Pharaoh. You remember the story? He was, all the babies, all, all the young boys were, were to be thrown into the Nile River uh, kind of uh, Pharaoh was trying to exterminate the Jews, essentially. I mean, he was trying to control the population. And so Moses' mom put him in a basket to save his life, and sure enough, Pharaoh's daughter found him in the Nile River, spared his life, brought him into the palace, raised him in the Egyptian palace. I mean, just how ironic, a Hebrew being raised in the Egyptian palace. And he spent his first 40 years of his life in the Egyptian palace, till one day he actually got so irate by seeing an Egyptian slave master, the way that he was treating uh, his Hebrew people. And he killed the Egyptian slave master. And as a result, Pharaoh wanted Moses dead. And so Moses fled from the palace and he spent the next 40 years of his life uh, kind of a, a bit nomadic. He was a shepherd in the outskirts of the desert. 
And so Moses now is 80 years old, and this is his first encounter that he's ever had with God. So this is where we pick it up, Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush, though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Just notice right there, Moses is drawn in first before God ever speaks. That's so often the way God operates in our lives. Verse 5, do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. I mean, notice here how he hides his face from God and then just several chapters later, he has a face-to-face relationship with God. Verse 7 says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That took some practice, by the way. And now the cry of of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I mean, it's just an amazing story. I mean, can you imagine if you put yourself in Moses' shoes? And I'd love to say that Moses responded with great faith that day and said, yes, Lord, I will go, I will do whatever. He eventually did, but he didn't get there automatically. He didn't respond with great faith. In fact, over the next several verses, we're going to read some bits and pieces of them. Moses begins to unfold to God all the reasons why he must not be the guy to do the job. he's, He's like, hey, God, first of all, nice to meet you. Never had an interaction with you before, but... I don't know if you know who I am, but that's not, that's not me. And he begins to give four specific different excuses to God. He says all the reasons why he can't do what God's asking him to do. And I, and I believe, and I, I'm going to suggest today, that the four excuses that Moses makes to God are oftentimes the very same excuses that we make to not encounter God powerfully in our lives. I believe that these four excuses are the same thing today that prevent us from experiencing and encountering an almighty God regularly and powerfully in our lives. The first one he says to God, he says, who am I? If you're taking notes today, that's who am I? See, self-doubt is one of the greatest tools of the devil to be able to prevent us from experiencing God intimately in our lives. You're not worthy, you're not good enough. Or remember that thing that you did in your past you're never going to measure up. We read exactly the account, Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And notice God's response. And God said, I will be with you. I think that response is peculiar. 
Because you would think if Moses is having this self-doubt, that God would just say, Moses, you're fearfully and wonderfully made. Moses, you're the man for the job. Moses, you, I will equip you. You are ready for this. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say any of that. He simply says, I will be with you. A few months ago, uh, we were in uh, Arizona, my family was, because my nephew was graduating high school, and so it was on my, uh, on my wife's side of the family, and so they all had rented a house together, and, which had a pool, which is a good thing in Arizona, and it had a diving board. That was a big deal. All, all the cousins are swimming in this pool every single day, and all the kids are taking turns off the diving board, and Eli, my three-year-old, says, I want to go off the diving board. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. And he has, he's got like one of these floaty things on that's just massive. He looks like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. And so he gets up, he's walking, he goes all the way to the diving board and he gets to the end of it. And he's typically kind of fearless type of kid, but you could tell he's a little freaked out by this. I mean, he, this is intimidating. He's standing at the end of the diving board and he's smiling, but you can tell uh, he, he's nervous. All, everyone else around notices that he's kind of frozen up and all the cousins start chanting, Eli, Eli. I mean, they're like trying to pump him up, and still he won't go. And then I, I swim over there. I'm like, Eli, I'll be right here, man. You can do this. I've seen you jump into the pool before. It's not a lot different. It's just a little higher up. You got this. You can do it. Won't jump. So I'm like, okay, well, I, I get out of the pool. I go all the way to the diving board, and I said, would it help if I grabbed your hand, we jumped in together. And he smiles, and he's like, yeah, that would be good, that'd be good. So sure enough, we jumped off, went into the pool together. See, in that moment, he didn't need me to tell him how awesome he was. He didn't need me to remind him, yeah, you're a big kid, you can do this. He simply needed to be held by the hand to know that his dad is right there, and it's going to be okay. And so often, I think that's exactly how God operates in our lives. He simply says, I know it's not going to be easy. I'm not saying that it's going to be a cakewalk, but I am here to tell you that I will be with you. That's the only thing that we need. See, we don't need to know how worthy we are. You know, because to be quite honest with you, we're not worthy. <laughs> you know, you read about it in, in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's the entire story of the gospel. It's all about what he has done, not about anything that we have done. You don't come to God based on your worth. You come to God based on his worth. You don't focus on who you are. You focus on who he is. You don't focus on what you've done. You focus on what he's done. Moses says, who am I? And God says, doesn't matter. I will be with you. It's all about me. It's not about, don't worry about you. It's about me. So then the second question that Moses asked God, and I think Moses might have, or God had kind of answered it in the first one, but he still isn't convinced, and so he says, who are you? See, we often see Moses as this great man of faith, and he was, but in this moment, his first encounter with God, I mean, just think about it. Moses doesn't have the Bible at this time, okay? This is, Moses has oral tradition. He heard the stories of Noah and others, but he doesn't, he doesn't know God for himself. It, it, I mean, he, in fact, I'm projecting a little bit, but I have to imagine Moses saw God as a little bit distant because for his entire life and hundreds of years before him, all he had known is that the, 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 the Hebrews were slaves to the Egyptians and they were oppressed and it didn't seem like God was doing anything about it. 
And it's in that moment that God shows up on the scene and talks to Moses. This is what is said in Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Notice he doesn't even say the God of my fathers. He says the God of your fathers has sent me to you. What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you to me. At first glance, it, it actually looks like God is giving Moses a bit of a non-answer. Like, what, is that, what does that mean? But I think it's so profound and significant what God is communicating to Moses here. He's saying, Moses, I've got you covered. Moses, I'm here, I'm available. I'll be everything that you need. I have no beginning, no ending. If you need a defender, I am. If you need a savior, I am. If you need a healer, I am. If you need a deliverer, I am. If you need a counselor, I am. I will be whatever you need me to be, I am. And that's the best way I know how to describe who I am. The question today for us is, do we believe that? Do we believe that, that, that our God is that big? See, so often I think many people don't experience the power of God in their lives because they don't really see God as a big God. They see God as a time, or maybe a rescuer in time of extreme need, but is he a God that you go to day in, day out, and he's your provider, he's your counselor, he's your healer, he's your friend, he's your comforter. Is that who God is to you? See, there's many theologians that they're called cessationists. They actually say, God used to, but he doesn't anymore. There's people that actually believe that, okay, the God of the, you know, all the miracles in the Bible, that, that's something that used to happen. It doesn't happen anymore. I'm here to tell you that it happens today. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my grandparents' lives. I've seen it in my parents' lives. I've seen it. I, I've seen the miracles of God, and I'm just telling you, he is a God that does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the same God that spoke to Moses in a burning bush is the same God we have access to today. I love how Jeremiah 32, 17, it says, Aw, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. See, I think the moment where we get to the point where we say, God, nothing is too difficult for you is the, point, is the moment where we are in a good position to see God work in an, in an awesome way in our lives. See, I think it's time that, that we stop telling all of our problems to God and tell God how big our problems are and start telling our problems how big our God is. And to the next time we pray that we actually say, God, I just want to remind you of how awesome you are, how big you are, how great you are. How big is your God? I think that's a question that we need to wrestle with today. Who am I? Who are you? And the third thing Moses says to God, he says, what will they say? What will they say? See, we often get concerned about what other people will say, and Moses was no different. In verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Moses answered, What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? See, this is one, if I'm going to be perfectly honest, this is one that I struggle with from time to time. This is one that I, I, wish, I, I wish I could say that I never care about what anybody thinks. But there's many times that as a pastor, there's people that ask, what do you do for a living? And I'm always a little bit skeptical about answering that question. I mean, I'm always going to be truthful. I'm not going to tell you anything different. But 
I've seen more people that, that kind of, they put up a little bit of a wall when I say that I'm a pastor, then the, the, the wall goes down. I mean, there's, there's many people that, I, I remember one time there was a neighbor who asked what I did, and I had, it was the only neighbor I actually told what I did. Nobody had ever asked. But like within a few weeks, I realized all of my neighbors know that I'm a pastor, but I didn't tell any of them. It's just <laughs> from, what, like one guy was inviting me over uh, for a bonfire, and he's like, hey, I know you, get, you got a big morning. Tomorrow morning is a Saturday night, but if you want to come over, you're welcome to. I'm thinking, I never even told you. Like, how do you know? So anyway, so often I think we care more about what people think than what God thinks. And that's exactly where Moses found himself. He's like, what are they going to say? What if they don't believe me? There's a verse in John chapter 12, verse 42, that is a tragic portion of scripture, but I think it describes so often where we can fall to. It says, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, talking about Jesus, but because of, because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise from God. It's a sad, sad verse. They didn't confess faith in Christ because they were afraid. They were more afraid of what men would say. For some, I believe that one of the obstacles to encountering God is stop worrying about what other people will say. At Life Church, we try to create an environment every single week where people can encounter God. And when we play music, it's not because we play music. It's a time for us to worship God. We see a model for that in Scripture. And we also see a model in Scripture that God is honored when we raise up hands in worship to him. And so when you see people doing that, they're not just doing that just because. They're doing that because that's a way that we show honor to God. And so maybe today you come in here and I'm, maybe you're new to all of this and you're like, well, I, you know, I don't, uh, should I raise my hands not? I don't know. And I just encourage you. I'd encourage you to take that step because the Bible says that when we draw near to God, he draws near to us, meaning when we draw near to God, we create an opportunity for us to encounter an almighty God. Some of the most powerful moments in my life, in my relationship with God, has been during moments of worship where I simply say, God, maybe I'm not even feeling it right now, but I'm going to give you honor because that's what we should do as Christ followers, and it's, it's awesome how many times he comes through and just says, put something into my heart. I mean, my call into ministry happened during a worship service where I just simply said, God, whatever you want to do, let it be done. Maybe it's in your workplace and it's just inviting somebody to church or telling somebody about your faith and you're so nervous about what they might say or the rejection that might follow. And I just encourage you today that one thing that's consistent with people that encountered God regularly and powerfully in their life throughout, throughout scripture, they're people that don't seem to really care a whole lot about what other people might say. And this was a hurdle that Moses had to get over. Who am I? Who are you? What will they say? And the last one, I have never. Moses begins to tell God how unqualified he is to do what he's asking him to do. You ever done that before? You ever plead with God and just say, I'm not the person for the job. I don't know if you understand this about me, but I'm not good at this. I mean, listen to what Moses says. It's, it's kind of humorous, actually. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, it says, Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue, not a good talker. The Lord said to him, who gave human beings their mouths? 
who makes them deaf or mute, who gives them sight or makes them blind. Is it not I, the Lord? Got him. <laughs> now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. I love this part about Moses, just to be honest with you, because it, I, I very much can relate to that. I mean, that seems to be my story very much, is that I remember when I was called in, to be a pastor into ministry when I just felt like God was telling me that's what I needed to do. I remember pleading with him and just saying, God, I don't know if you understand this. I'm an introvert. I like math, and I don't like talking in front of people. Pastor material, right? You know, like, why, why would you call me to do something that just doesn't seem to be a gifting at all? And time and time again throughout Scripture, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, almost every single story in Scripture where God calls somebody to do something, it's somebody that's completely unqualified to do it. Moses was no different. I mean, no qualifications to be able to lead the people. I mean, not good at speaking in front of people. He gets nervous, tongue-tied, whatever you want to say. And I think that's the exact reason why God chose him. Because if you're completely qualified, you don't really require a whole lot of faith to do that, if you can do it within your own power. And God has a tendency to take people that are not qualified. And he says, you know what? That's perfect because it's going to require a lot of faith on your behalf. You're going to have to rely on me heavily because you cannot do this on your own. See, the moment we feel unqualified, we are in such a great spot because we serve a God who wants to come alongside us just as a dad comes alongside a son and hold our hand and say, I'm with you. I get it. You're not good at this. And you know what? But I'm going to help you I will, I will make a way, and in fact, he actually gave him Aaron to be able to be the mouthpiece of Moses. I mean, he actually gave him Jethro to be able to, uh, his father-in-law, to be able to help uh, manage all of these people. It wasn't, he had a lot of help. He had a lot of help. Hebrews eleven six actually says, without faith it is impossible to please God, as if to suggest that we cannot encounter God without faith. We can't do it on our own. It takes faith to please God. It takes faith to have an encounter with God. See, Moses, his first encounter with God was, was not the most faith-filled moment in all of Scripture. He's skeptical. I mean, he says, who am I? Who are you? What will they say? I have never. I mean, he just goes on and on and on. But somewhere between that first moment and the end of Moses' life, Moses became a man who was very faith-filled. Moses became a man who had this face-to-face -face relationship with God. In fact, I love one of the last uh, verses in Deuteronomy. Right after Moses has died, this is what's written about Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face-to-face who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his officials, and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. And all of that started with one encounter. See, never underestimate the power of one encounter with the Almighty God. And maybe today you've experienced that before. You've had an encounter with God, but maybe it's been a long time since you feel like you've just had just a moment with God. 
And all of this, this entire message, honestly, is, is quite meaningless unless you actually put that into action and say, God, I don't have all the answers. I'm not perfect. I've screwed up big time in the past. But I'm simply here and I want to encounter you. I can't force that to happen in your life. At Life Church, we can create opportunities. We can create fertile soil for that to happen. But that's something where you have to initiate that on your own. Again, like I said before, the Bible says that when we draw near to God, that he draws near to us. He doesn't say sometimes he draws near to you. He says he will draw near to you. One encounter with God can absolutely change your life. The question for us today is, are we putting ourselves in position to encounter God more regularly and powerfully in our lives?